Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Are we sitting comfortably? <laughs> Evening all. Um, welcome to RSA House and to this President's Lecture. Uh, I'm Andy Haldane, for those who haven't met me previously. I'm the uh, new, uh, newish uh, CEO uh, here. And it's simply fantastic to welcome uh, so many of you, so many eminent guests, uh, both uh, in the room and indeed uh, online as well, the many hundreds online, uh, to this signature event in the RSA's uh, calendar. And a particularly warm welcome, of course, uh, to our very special guest and speaker this evening, Julia Gillard, who'll be introduced in just a second, uh, Julia. So we're here, physically, in the great room, uh, which, as many of you probably know, has, over the years, hosted an array of unbelievable speakers, from Alexander Graham Bell to Guillermo Marconi to, more recently, uh, Michelle Bachelet, former president of Chile and the first elected leader of a South American country, and Julia very much continues in that rich lineage. The, uh, the mural surrounding you, you see that? I'm sure you've seen it previously. Uh, that's called The Progress uh, of Human Knowledge uh, and Culture. If you wanted a single sentence uh, to describe what the RSA has been up to for the past 250 plus years, I think you still do a better job uh, than that of describing what we've been about. And, and indeed, we'll be about, I hope, for the next 250 years doing the self-same thing. It was painted uh, by a guy called James uh, Barry, who indeed painted himself um, quite literally into the corner uh, just there, a sort of 18th century uh, selfie. Um, uh, although um, I imagine taking a bit longer uh, to do it. Um, it took actually Barry uh, 24 years to finish uh, this mural. I know what we're all thinking. That's a fairly astonishing uh, act um, of personal commitment. I'm an economist, so I'm thinking, what an astonishingly low level of personal productivity uh, <laughs> that is. So back at the lecture, uh, tonight's event um, is uh, developed in connection with one of our key programmes here at the RSA, the Cities of, Learning's Pro City of, Learning, City of Cities of Learning programme, rather, which is essentially about the promotion of inclusive, lifelong uh, learning. We're hugely looking forward to what Julie has to say about that at the global level with a focus on gender uh, and leadership. Uh, the RSA's president, uh, Her Royal Highness the Princess Royal, uh, can't attend in person this evening, uh, but she will introduce the event and we'll hear shortly from her uh, in a recorded uh, message. But after Julie has spoken, we'll have time for some questions from you. So do ping those in, either from the floor or online, and uh, we'll ask them of Julia. If you're watching the live stream, it says here, you can post your question in the YouTube chat bar, apparently, or on something called uh, Twitter, whatever that is, uh, using the hashtag RSA. Uh, learning. We'll try and squeeze in as many questions as possible before finishing promptly at seven, because then the drinks commence. So uh, with that, without further ado, let's now hear from Her Royal Highness, the Princess Royal. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome 
to the 2022 RSA President's Lecture. It is clear that the RSA's mission, values and purpose are possibly more important today than at any time in its history. And I would like to take this opportunity to thank the staff for their resilience, energy and commitment to their work over the last few years, as well as to thank every fellow watching this evening for all you do to support the society to continue in its efforts to unite people and ideas to resolve the challenges of our time. The RSA's Developing Innovation Programme, Cities of Learning, recognises the importance of communities and places that support learning from cradle to grave. This work brings together policymakers, employers, learning providers and cultural institutions to build a shared language of skills and progression across a town, city or region. Digital technology then helps learners discover new opportunities, display their skills and develop their careers in the place where they live. Learning must be at the heart of the UK's levelling up agenda, as learning is not just of benefit to jobs, but is key to the well-being of people, place and planet. So I'm pleased to introduce this evening's distinguished speaker, Julia Gillard. Julia is Chair of Welcome and was the 27th Prime Minister of Australia and as PM put a high policy focus on the reform of Australian education system. Julia was also Chair of the Global Partnership for Education from 2014 to 2021 and was appointed to the Commission on Financing for Global Education. Julia serves as patron of CAMFED, the Campaign for Female Education, and is inaugural chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. At the heart of much of Julia's work is a recognition that learning and education is fundamental to our ability to build a healthy ecosystem across environment, society and economy. These initiatives demonstrate clearly how creating societies that place whole life learning at the centre of their culture is pivotal to grappling with the deep challenges we are facing. Julia's innovative leadership across global education has set standards and we are looking forward to the lessons and insights she will share with us this evening. Please welcome Julia Gillard for the 2022 RSA President's Lecture. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much and thank you to Andy and to Her Royal Highness for those very kind words. It's a pleasure to join you all here tonight and I'm honoured to be invited to make a contribution at the RSA as you further develop your work on your cities and learning program and you could have no better leader of that work than Tom Kenyon. Let me start tonight with a disclaimer. I wish I could stand before you full of upbeat news about how well our world is going and the competent, committed, collaborative approach that leaders are taking globally to solving our hardest problems. I really wish I could do that. 
Unfortunately, I can't because I don't want you to conclude that I've been downing cocktails since breakfast, and I think you surely would. It's never a great review of a speech when you walk away saying, well, at least she seems like a happy drunk. Uh, so I'm trying to avoid that and instead stone cold sober. Tonight, I want to be explicit about the challenges we face and to explore our failure to have the best leaders in place as we confront them. Spe specifically, I will be tackling the way in which gender inequality, which holds back the talent of half the population, intersects with contemporary geopolitics, community attitudes and learning. I will also venture some ideas for change. Let's start with the geopolitics and citing the key challenges we face as a global community. And I'm going to do this quickly, though I warn you in advance, it's a pretty depressing list. First, we face a crisis of globalisation. Economists, businesses and the foreign policy establishment used to dream big dreams about the positive power of globalisation. Many imagined a more peaceful future, believing countries connected by trade, supply chains and tech would not fight. Thinker and writer Tom Friedman described how countries which both had McDonald's would not go to war. Now, of course, all of this has been unmasked as an illusion. Instead, we face the nightmare of a land war being fought in Europe, while current foreign policy critiques divide the world into contending blocks of democracies versus autocracies. Concerningly, we come to this debate worried about the fragility of democracy, including contemplating how social media is corroding the glue which holds societies together. In the US, mad claims about a stolen election and investigations into the subsequent storming of the Capitol continue and highlight all of this. In addition, there is a loss of faith in the ability of democracies to deliver social mobility, and that further exacerbates concerns. While all this is happening, the climate change crisis continues with the malfunctioning of democratic and global politics, making it harder to reach the real solutions which would save us from the most catastrophic consequences. Of course, all of this is well known to you, but let me now invite you to look through a different lens at the geopolitical backdrop to our discussions today, and that is through the lens of gender equality. How does this all play out when the world meets to try and resolve the huge challenges that we confront? Well, the result in the UN General Assembly is kind of obvious because as we meet tonight of the 193 UN member states, currently only 15 have women leaders with executive power. So that's well under 10%. And of course, the United Nations has never been led by a woman. But what about structures like the G20 and the G7? This year, the G20 is scheduled to be held on the beautiful island of Bali in November. Indonesia is the host and it has maintained its invitation to President Putin to attend, despite pressure from the US and others to rescind it. Time will tell how this will play out, 
but it is close to impossible to imagine President Biden and other Democratic leaders attending a summit in the company of a man they understandably describe as guilty of war crimes. If against these expectations the G20 did meet in its usual format, then it would gather the leaders of Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, the Republic of Korea, Mexico, Russia, Russia Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Turkey, the UK, the US and the European Union around one table. The heads of the World Bank and the IMF also attend. The only women around that table would be Ursula von der Leyen of the EU and Kristalina Georgieva of the IMF. If, as seems likely, the difficulties facing the G20 put more of a spotlight on the June meeting of the G7, which will be held in Germany, then the only woman in attendance will be Ursula. Having looked up at the global structures, let's now look towards our communities. In the lead-up to International Women's Day this year, Ipsos, the noted global polling company, in partnership with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, conducted and released the results of a survey of over 20,000 people in 30 countries on gender attitudes. It found, starting here in Britain, that one in five Britons think feminism does more harm than good, while three in 10 feel traditional masculinity is under threat. And that's the highest result among eight Western European nations surveyed. One in six people in the UK think men have lost out in terms of economic and political power or socially as a result of feminism, with men three times more likely to think that than women. Internationally, when we ask people if they agree with the statement that gender inequality exists, 45% of people don't. Perhaps unsurprisingly, men are more likely to dismiss the existence of gender inequality than women. Looking globally at violence against women, around one in six agree with the statement that women who say they were raped or otherwise sexually abused often make up or exaggerate these claims, with men at 20% twice as likely as women to hold this view. Right now, you might be thinking, well, that's all dreadful, but there will be an age skew with these attitudes dying out. Yet the survey shows younger people are more likely to agree with victim-blaming statements. For example, around one in five Gen Z and millennials agree that violence against women is often provoked by the victim, compared with 14% of Gen X and 11% of baby boomers. My own nation, Australia, came out particularly badly in these survey measures. For example, in Australia, 28% of men agreed women often falsely allege or exaggerate claims of rape or abuse. In addition, 19% of Australian men said it was a woman's obligation to have sex with her boyfriend or husband, even if she didn't feel like it. And Australia was second highest in the world, behind only Malaysia, 
when asked if it was acceptable to use sexist or misogynistic language online, with 23% of men saying it was all right, and a broadly similar number agreeing it was acceptable to share intimate images of a woman online without her consent. Finally, using our gender equality lens, let's remind ourselves that year after year, statisticians show that women disproportionately number amongst those living in poverty. With a sense of urgency, we should be asking ourselves and each other, why is it still as bad as this? Or perhaps even, why doesn't rage against gender equality fill gender inequality fill our channels of public discourse every day? Maybe, just like research shows, people at a function overestimate the number of women in a room and they under overestimate for how long women talk. We all collectively overestimate how much progress is being made. Or is it that crises in our world fly so thick and fast we can't sustain attention on the circumstances of women and girls? To take one example of this phenomenon, it seems our eyes and minds have largely moved on from tracking what is happening in Afghanistan while the Taliban's exclusion of girls from school continues. But really, the most profound question is, what are we going to do about it? That squarely brings us back to the RSA and its thinking around learning. Understandably and admirably, you are conceiving of this agenda as a pro-equity one. Tom Kenyon, in his piece, Learn, Unlearn, Relearn, stresses this with the words, we cannot afford people leaving school thinking they have failed at learning. If a student has not gained five good GCSEs, after 11 years of direct classroom instruction, how do we support their learning differently? Is it a question of pedagogy or passion? How do we ensure that the foundational skills of modern learning, literacy, numeracy and digital literacy are seen as rights for all? You at the RSA are also working to identify gender barriers. However, let me offer some additional thoughts on how to embed an approach that is pro-gender equality in our shared learning agenda. First, for many years, I've been focused on the global inequity that condemns hundreds of millions of children, mostly girls, to no schooling or very poor quality schooling. Domestic expenditure on education is projected to fall an average of 8% as a result of current economic dislocations with two-thirds of poorer countries reporting cutbacks. At the same time, projections show overseas aid to education may fall by $2 billion per year from its 2020 peak. Advocacy for the right of every child to an effective school education must be at the centre of our work. Second, and broadening our approach from schooling to all forms of learning, unlearning and relearning, we need to embed a gender equality perspective into everything, from the design of cities, to the development of artificial intelligence, to the support of childcare, to the future of work. Basically, we need to re-engineer 
the many structural barriers that hold women back in a world that has historically been made for men. And if that isn't enough to be getting on with, we have to reboot our brains and get out of them the sexist stereotypes that also hold women back. Let me give you an example of each. On weekdays when the weather is good enough to be outside at almost any suburban park in the United Kingdom, you would likely see a gathering of women with prams, a mother's group on an outside coffee and play catch-up, a moment of sharing while caring. The same would be true in Australia, though obviously the number of days you can gather in parks is uh, far larger in number. <laughs> Should you take yourself to Norway, you will encounter groups of men with prams doing exactly the same thing. What's different? The answer is a system of parental leave that means both parents have use it or lose it entitlements to a decent amount of paid leave. Male and female couples tend to use both entitlements and stagger them, so the mother stays home for the stint of full-time caring immediately after the baby is born, and the father stays home after she has returned to work. The result? More equal patterns of domestic labour and care have been observed in such households as long as five years later, and there is less likelihood that workplaces create a mummy track in which women who have taken maternity leave are seen as less serious about their careers. This is a structural intervention through government policy with multiple positive ramifications for gender equality. Another structural intervention can be effective equal worth policies that allow jobs to be re-evaluated and orders made about fair remuneration to address the historic biases against what has traditionally been thought of as women's work. Organisations can make structural interventions too, whether it's gender-blind recruitment practices, bespoke analysis of what is preventing women getting to leadership levels in equal numbers, and smart policies defining what merit is. Let me give a real-world example that is pertinent right now. Many businesses are embracing what has been learned about the benefits of virtual work during pandemic lockdowns. That's all to the good, and for some occupations may mean a better and more balanced future for work and family life. However, if all that is done is the offering of flexibility, while assessments of merit for promotion still tend to be based on office presenteeism, we may well wake up in five years' time in a working world where men disproportionately go to the office, women tend to work from home, and men are enjoying greater access to career advancement. As complex as this kind of structural work is, the reboot of our brains may be even harder. Research studies constantly show that all of us, every one of us, including young people, have embedded in our brains gender stereotypes which associate competence and command with men and tend to see male leaders as likeable, whereas women are associated with empathy and nurturing, and we tend to see female leaders as nasty because being in charge offends against our stereotyping. On the competence point, 
A very persuasive study was conducted at North Carolina State University, which had a wholly online course taught to four different classes by a male lecturer and a female lecturer. As a result of the particular way this course was delivered, students never met or saw the teacher. This enabled the male teacher to teach one class, disclosing his true identity, and the female teacher to teach one class disclosing her true identity. But for classes three and four, they effectively switched genders, with the woman teaching the course pretending to be a man and vice versa. When the male teacher's performance was evaluated by students, he was marked down by those who believed him to be a woman compared with those who believed him to be a man. The female teacher scored better with those who believed her to be male compared to those who thought she was a woman. Obviously, the calibre of his and her teaching did not change. The only thing that did was the perception of gender. On the stereotypes of empathy and nurturing, a study of the male-dominated field of engineering found that a confident male engineer would gain influence in his organisation. But for a woman to do the same, confidence alone was not enough. She needed to be seen as competent and caring as well. Academic researchers Laurie A. Rudman and Peter Glick have conducted experiments on attitudes towards men and women and have shown that a nice, considerate woman is just seen as conforming to expectations, whereas a man will get a good response because he will be seen to have gone above and beyond usual behavioural norms. Indeed, being seen as, help, as a helpful colleague has been shown to correlate with employment promotions for men, but not for women. To that kind of pervasive sexism, what has our response been to date? Well, while many political parties, businesses, civil society groups and education institutions are trying to do the deep work, we know that too much energy and money is being wasted on interventions, like one-off rounds of unconscious bias training which do not have a positive impact. Alternatively, money is being spent on empowerment courses for women, which proceed from the basis that if only a woman lent in, it would all be different, not recognising that what she is being asked to lean in to is a world that is wired to repudiate as a bossy bitch, a woman who pushes hard for her own career advancement. Any learning agenda has to take into account what the evidence says about what works to counter gender bias. At the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, which I chair, our mission is to get into the hands of decision makers the toolkits that truly make a difference. We want to short circuit through advocacy and action the more than 130 year time frame currently predicted for ending gender inequality globally. Achieving that will be complex. There is no one tool no one change that will make all the difference. I remember Al Gore, when he was first bringing climate change to global attention, was given to using the phrase, there is no silver bullet, but there is silver buckshot. 
Now, this might be the kind of analogy you come up with when you live in a country with too many guns, <laughs> but I think that it does have resonance in the gender debate. We have to be working on many levels and in many ways to make a truly deep change. And so I'm here this evening urging you, the RSA, to double down on designing your learning solutions with gender and other forms of discrimination at the centre. That would be a powerful contribu contribution worthy of this great institution. I thank you. Thank you, Julia, for that incredibly rich, inspiring, entertaining <laughs> uh, lecture. Really fantastic stuff. And to the very end of your speech there, in terms of us picking up the mantle and taking on uh, that mission, absolutely, that's four square in our sights. Um, unlocking the potential, removing the barriers, and there are many in various forms. You mentioned gender. Uh, it's true of ethnicity, it's true of people's history. Yeah. Um, that is absolutely four square where some of our sites will be focused in the, in the period ahead. Um, but listen, I know there's going to be loads of interest and questions uh, in the room and indeed online, so I think we should go straight to that. Sure. Um, and while I'm figuring out how the iPad works, <laughs> um, were there any questions uh, in the room for Julia? Can you wait for a uh, a microphone, and maybe just give your name as well. Uh, who'd like to kick? Uh, who'd like to kick us off? We'll start just here with Peter. Uh, Julie, uh, Peter Eslin. Um, I'd like to pick up really where almost you left off, in the sense that a fascinating lecture uh, and you know, packed with huge amounts of, of evidence that we, you know, we're not making the progress we need to make, and that, that 130 year w was frightening. In looking at gender relative to the other elements of uh, diversity and inclusion, I think one of the challenges certainly I sort of face in, in my world is, as soon as you try to focus on gender, people want you then to pick up other elements like ethnicity. And to some extent, it, it makes that buckshot uh, even more, shall we say, fragmented. So I wonder if you could comment in the sense of how do you feel in, in, in terms of how do we focus on gender as a priority, but in the context of there is other levels of inequality out there that are also, I think, important? That's a, a very um, important question, and thank you for asking it. Um, I'm reminded of a story of a friend of mine. She's a black woman who um, is a very senior corporate person in a global company. Uh, and she tells this story that a few years back, uh, her company was on a mission around gender equality and they'd done some things to diversify the board. And so they were proudly putting up pictures of the new board, which used to be, you know, disproportionately white men. And they were putting up a board now which had a number of white women on it. And she said, well, look, this is, you know, all very well, but as a black woman, I still look at the board and I don't see anybody who looks like me. To which she was assured that, don't worry, we're going to do race next. Um, and, <laughs> you know, this, this, is, this is exactly the, the problem, um, which is 
uh, we, you know, the theorists would use the terminology intersectionality, uh, that in analysing disadvantage, people don't come in, um, you know, just uh, a nice statistician's box. You will end up with uh, black women who feel both the sting of uh, gender inequality and the sting of racism. Uh, you'll end up with, uh, you know, minoritised ethnic groups uh, that are growing up kids and families in socially deprived um, areas here, you would say, you know, levelling up up north, all the rest of it. Um, and so we, we've got to be analysing the data to bring out all of these intersections and then looking at the policy that makes a difference overall. And fortunately, there are some things that you can combine that definitely make a difference for everyone uh, because you're taking the, the stereotypes out. So to give a few examples of that, um, we know that role modelling matters, that if people can see someone who looks like them, who's achieved, uh, then they can imagine being in that position. We can diversify who we're putting out there as role models. Um, and the evidence around that, for example, um, female scientists, including female scientists of colour, um, getting girls inspired around science, that evidence is very, very strong. Um, if you're doing gender-blind recruitment, then that in and of itself will be race-blind because you're not seeing personal characteristics. Mm -hmm. If you're getting very um, specific about what you mean by merit, then you are taking the subjective factors out of it. So in setting performance requirements for teams, if it's clear on as objective a metrics as you can possibly get what success looks like, then you're much more likely to see diverse people come through. Whereas if you leave it on the basis of, you know, I've kind of got the feel that, you know, um, Fred's doing better than Susie, um, then you'll never know how much of that was influenced by bias. And if, um, you know, Fred is a white man and Susie is a black woman, well, you'll never know how much of it was influenced by race and gender bias. Uh, so these strategies, which we would advocate, I think also make a difference in intersectionality. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some things that just need to be done for race and some things that just need to be done for gender, but I think it's far more integrated than people might think at first look. Fantastic. Let me go online. Okay. Um, and Diana Davidson, uh, question. Um, good one, this one. Who or what inspired you, Julia, to become a leader? And how would you like to be remembered as Australia's first woman prime minister? Question mark. <laughs> um, a good friend of mine is uh, the former New Zealand Prime Minister, John Key, who's actually from the other side of politics. He's a conservative, uh, though uh, that kind of conservative in New Zealand is, um, you know, uh, a progressive on a lot of other people's landscapes. Um, uh, but but we're, we were good friends and we stayed good friends um, uh, since our time in politics. Uh, and we were having a conversation one day where he went with the winning line, you know what, Julia, first line of our obituary's already been written. Like, oh, gee, you're in a cheery mood today, John. Thank you for saying that. Um, but uh, he's right, and I've got no doubt the first line of my obituary is going to be uh, first woman to lead Australia, um, which... Uh, kind of gives you a delicious amount of freedom because you don't have to worry about any of that anymore. It's kind of taking care of itself and you can get on and do things that you're passionate about and work with teams that you want to work with. So that's the kind of approach I take to it now. In terms of who inspired me, uh, the 
woman who was my closest mentor was a woman called Joan Kerner, who was the first woman to lead the state of Victoria. You know, we have um, state governments, state premiers. She was the first woman to lead Victoria, and I knew her well and personally because I was a university and student union friend of her son Dave, and so having that kind of very up close and personal look at her journey through politics meant we were very firm friends and she was a great mentor to me for the rest of her life. Fantastic. Should we go back in the room and maybe come uh, down the front here? <laughs> Sorry, and then we'll go to the back. Thank you. Uh, Christina and I interview inspirational women and one of the inspirational women who I interviewed um, was Professor Dame Athene Donald who was, at the time, it was the day that Brexit happened, actually, that I interviewed her, so the parents were, were a bit down. But she, um, at that time, was working in Cambridge at gender equality. And one of the things that she mentioned as an example, and I think this is very much the point that you're making, was when they were having a science conference in, for example, Manchester, they would send down a list of the people that they were going to have on the panel. And Athena said, we took one look and sent it back as stale male white. And she said, and then suddenly, Without much thought, within a week, they came back with, why haven't we thought of X, Y, and Z? So it's, and she also wrote a column called, If You Only Do One Thing, which is, I can recommend to people, quite brilliant about. And, and it does cover both the aspects of, of race and gender, which I've always, intersectionality, I didn't realise that's what we were doing back in the 80s, but we were. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, I remember to a uh, UN event um, <coughs> for uh, education where they had a seven-member panel, all men, uh, despite uh, everybody knowing that the biggest problems in the world um, tend to be about girls' education. And actually, when you look at, uh, you know, who's making up the activist level for change about education, uh, it tends, tends to be women, you know, teaching profession very highly feminised um, and consequently the source of uh, who goes on to be the most uh, cogent and forceful activist. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. That kind of diversity in presentation really matters. Um, thank you. Was there another question there at the back? Can't quite see. Thank you. Um, I'm curious to know what you say to men who essentially are saying to you, but I'm going to lose out. Uh, well, there'd be the polite version and the less polite version, but um, if, if I was going to go with the more polite version in current company, um, I'd, uh, I'd actually say that a gender equal, a more gender equal world is actually better for everyone. Um, and there's certainly increasingly good evidence now that diverse teams make better quality decisions. That's diversity in every sense, not just gender. Uh, and in a world as fragmented and fractious as ours, we obviously need the best teams and the best decisions being made. Uh, and it also um, opens up the field for uh, men to express uh, more preferences and show more sides of their character. I mean, gender prisons are not just for one gender. If you're the man who, you know, has grown up in a culture where you've always been told, you know, um, strong, silent type, don't talk about your problems, stiff upper lip, don't cry, uh, never show distress, 
Um, no, even if you think you'd be really good at one of the caring professions, you can't aspire to be uh, in a childcare worker or uh, something like that because men don't do jobs like that. Um, if that's been the way in which you've sort of put yourself or felt that you've been forced into a sort of gendered role that doesn't suit you, then a more fluid way of everybody engaging is obviously very much in your interest too. Yes, there is, you know, mathematical change. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we, we in the Australian Labor Party, right in the early 90s, adopted affirmative action targets, which meant we've moved our political party at the federal level from being 14% uh, women uh, to now being around 50% women. So yes, there would have been men who wanted to end up in the parliament and be pre-selected for the Labor Party, who in an earlier age would have had a better opportunity than they've got in this age. But do you really want to get there because you got some concessional kind of pass, some free kick uh, because of your gender? Or do you want to contend in a fair way with others who are interested and then have the system uh, bring the best people to the top? Uh, so, you know, I think we've got to get people to accept that that's a better world. Julia, thank you. I'll go back online. Uh, and Leslie Shen, who says, thanks, Julia, for your inspiring speech. Do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, suspended progress in achieving gender equality? And if so, how can we deal with that, do you think? I think uh, certainly during the days of the pandemic, there were, um, and we never can forget that this was a virus and continues to be a virus, that when you look at uh, death rates, um, it's uh, more likely men, men figure disproportionately in those who lost their lives to COVID-19. So we can never forget that. Uh, but if we start looking at the broader ramifications of the pandemic, I mean, there's no doubt that our caring workforces who are most at risk are highly feminised workforces. Um, and it's one thing to get on your doorstep and clap for the NHS. Um, it's another thing to support the re-evaluation of caring work, which has been historically underpaid because it's been viewed as women's work. So I think there's an agenda there we've got to take forward. We've learned a lot about virtual working. Now, it can only work for a subset of occupations, but I do think that could give us some progress in the future. We learned a lot about um, domestic labour and who steps up to it. Uh, my favourite statistic for the whole pandemic uh, was a research piece here in the UK that showed um, in male-female couples where both of them worked full-time, and she was the higher income earner. They're both working from home. During lockdown, she disproportionately stepped up to the extra domestic demands. So they both stepped up a bit, but she disproportionately stepped up. And I like that statistic because um, a lot of the allocation of domestic work is historically justified because of the gender pay gap. And so, you know, most, not most, many male female couples, the woman would earn less than the man, and so people would put the argument it's just economically rational. If someone's career needs to give way, it's the woman's because she's the lower income earner. Um, what that statistic tells us is that there's whole lots of this that is not economically rational, and it's just about gender stereotypes and gender roles. So I hope some of that research has shone a light um, on gender inequalities at home. 
There are mixed statistics about the, the great resignation and I'm of the school of thought that says some of, um, some of that has been a bit overput um, in uh, the economic you know, columnists and newspapers, uh, but there were particularly in the US some concerning signs that uh, the pandemic had ratcheted down the labour force a female labour force participation rate. Now, whether that continues, I think, remains to be seen. But if it did result in a permanent loss of women's opportunity at work, that would be truly concerning. Terrific. There's a couple of questions uh, here and here. Hello, thank you very much. Um, I was just, it's, it's actually linked to a couple of other questions. Um, I feel that um, a lot of, we're, quite held back by a mentality of scarcity. And I feel like a lot of this debate is framed in a mentality of scarcity. So if women are you know, elevated, then men come down. Um, if we frame this, reconceptualize it in um, a mentality of abundance, do you think that would speed up the um, less resistance, but also speed up that sort of 130 year time frame, which is quite shocking? Um, and uh, yeah, if you could just say a bit more about scarcity, scarcity and abundance, that'd yeah, be amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, I, I think you're onto a really important area. It's one um, when uh, my colleague and friend Ngozi Okonjiru Wheeler and I uh, wrote the book on women and leadership, uh, wrote our book. We we thought about this a lot. Um, there's there's a few dimensions here. I think. I mean, we. We give statistics and we analyse our societies based on current power structures. And whilst they have got flatter and more communal and collaborative than power structures of old, they're, they're still pyramids. You know, there's only one global CEO of a major corporation. There's only one prime minister. Uh, there's only one, ultimately, you know, chief justice, the highest um, judicial figure in the land, and the list goes on. And so we, we at the Global Institute, and Ngozi and I in thinking about our book, tried to interrogate all of that and, and, and put forward strategies to make those power structures more equal, even while saying there are things to question here about how we organise ourselves, um, you know, I mean, particularly circling back to the, the things I said at the start of the speech, particularly in fragile um, democracies. You know, we shouldn't think, gee, we've got all of this right, all of this is going to, you know, endure for all of eternity because it's working so well. It's not. Um, and so interrogating what we mean by leadership, what we mean by power structures, how power should flow, how can we think about that in a more abundance uh, mindset, which you've pointed to, rather than a scarcity one, I think is a really important question to interrogate. I don't have the answers, but I think we've got to look at that side of the debate as well. We talked about the politics of scarcity in a different context too, which is, and I think we've all felt this as women, that because women have been coming in from the outside to power structures, you know, you might have a, um, you know, a committee, a board, whatever, a collection of people at the most senior levels of management, um, and it's got to the stage that you know, 20% of the people are women or 30% are women. And it's pretty easy as a woman to effectively conclude to yourself, if I want to be there, 
my most obvious route to getting there is to replace one of the current women, because they tend to give about 20 or 30% of these things to women. Um, and that politics of scarcity then pits women against women, instead of you know, taking the step back and saying, you know, how can we change the rules of this game so women aren't always left scrapping over the smaller slice? I'm going to take a question online and then go to you, don't forget, I haven't forgotten, um, uh, next. But just a, uh, how does disability feature in this picture, Julia, alongside the dimensions you mentioned already? Yeah, I mean, I'm hugely, uh, I mean, when, when I think about, you know, the, the debates we had in Australia when I was Prime Minister, one of the big ones was um, how we would move away from the... Um, you know, sort of ramshackle way in which Australians with disabilities were getting their care and support to a better system. And it was ramshackle because, you know, in Aus you know we've got a good healthcare system by the standards of the world, but uh, in the disability area, you know, it was very chopped up between what the federal government would do, what state governments would do, and things were capped and queued. And so if you were the, you know, nine, you know, the thousandth person to get on the queue, then you'd probably miss out because there were only 900 sort of packages of support available. And we deliberately re-engineered that. And one of the reasons we, you know, I mean, it was obviously morally right, but another reason we re-engineered it was limitations to those packages of support were preventing people who otherwise did want to be out in the community, out in the world, and most particularly out in the workforce from participating in it. And if we could get that right, then we could give them an entry uh, to the world that you know, we all aspire to be in, where we can follow our passions, where we can seek out opportunities and we can prosper. But what government can do is only the baseline, then everybody else um, has to be really uh, thoughtful about what kind of discriminations are built into their systems against people with disabilities. And uh, that is far more complex than just the physical um, infrastructure changes that have tend to be made in, in many places. Uh, and so I think that's another dimension of the intersectionality that we talked about before. Fantastic. And then question at the back. Thank you. Um, thank you for such an interesting talk. Um, I work in education. I'm a senior leader at a boys' school. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see the role of the education of young people in this. Because I, when I was younger, went to an all-girls school, and I felt like I have heard talks like this one, uh, maybe not as eloquent, um, for, you know, every couple of years for the last 20 years with the similar stories and identification of similar barriers and people talking about parental leave. And I think that young women are really aware of the hurdles that they will face as they grow up, particularly in this country. Um, but I wonder if the same is true of young men and if you have any ideas about how education of young men in particular could help change the picture. Yeah, I mean, I... Um I agree with you with the sort of fatigue level about how long we've been at this. And, and we, you know, we have made progress. I certainly don't want to be heard to say that we haven't made any progress. We have, uh, but not quickly enough. And that 130-year statistic comes from the World Economic Forum, and it's a, a frightening one. I, I think a lot of it does come back to transmitted gender stereotypes in education and in the family home. 
And I think many schools and many parents do almost everything they possibly can to break that down. But it is so pervasive. Um, I, I remember uh, being in an airport and watching um, a woman literally losing the argument with her six or seven-year-old daughter about whether pink was a uh, colour for girls. And, you know, with, with a sense of kind of um, despair she was, you know, but Daddy's got a pink shirt, you know, and, and you could just tell there is no way in the world anybody in that child's life in the family home had ever said to her, you know, Mummy wears pink, Daddy doesn't. They'd, they'd never been done. But this, you know, influence came from the outside. Um, and I, I think we're still at the start of re-engineering um, you know, those sorts. We get, we're getting better at it, you know, so modelling about scientists has made a difference to girls studying science. We're getting better about it, but there's still a lot to do. And I do worry that even as, you know, we've thought about television shows and children's television and children's books and all of those things that people do very, um, uh, very thoroughly now, that there is this kind of wild west of social media where a lot of these things are getting reinforced. So even if six-year-olds are kind of escaping um, because they've got much more, um, you know, gender-equal learning tools, but the, by the time kids are adolescents and they're glued to their phone, actually what they're getting is very biased, very gendered and disturbingly often very sexualised content. Um, and we, you know, now Elon Musk is in charge. I'm sure this is only five minutes from being fixed. Um, but uh, we, we, do, we do need to work our way through that with the potential that this gets exacerbated again with the metaverse and all the rest of it. We're nearing the end of our time, so I think this will have to be the last question, uh, Julia. And I thought I'd save this one to last. This will test you most, I think. Uh oh. Brace yourself, uh, given your intro. So the question's from, uh, from Rory Campbell. He said, what sources of optimism sustain your drive for progress? Where should we look for optimism, Julia, in this uh, world? Yeah, um, I, uh, I, I am optimistic, uh, definitely optimistic. And where I find my sources of optimism, um, one, the activist class that cares about these issues now, particularly the younger activist class, they're just so smart. Um, and, you know, I, you know, when I got to university, I mean, you know, no, no one was teaching gender studies in the uh, late 1970s, early 1980s at Adelaide University, let me assure you. Um, but, um, <laughs> You know, there, there was lively feminist debate on campus and I thought, you know, I'd got lots of this worked out. Um, but I left university with this very naive assumption that the world was on to, um, you know, gender inequality and that by the time I was in my, you know, sort of 40-somethings, um, this would all be fixed, the rate of progress would just be so fast. The current activist class, I think, is far smarter, far more knowing 
and far more intolerant of the slow rate of progress. And I think they're a formidable generation of up and coming uh, movement shapers um, and they're going to challenge us as they should. And the other thing I particularly, and those activists are, are you know, um, people right across the board, men, women, everybody, um, but of, of the women activists, the other thing that really strikes me is, um, you know, there's the, the old sort of uh, feminist lyrics about don't, don't be too polite, girls, don't be too polite. But I think we were very polite. I mean, I think we were very polite for a long period of time, uh, partly because we knew we were in a world that judged um, uh, assertive, aggressive women very harshly. I think this up-and-coming generation basically doesn't care. So they know the judgment's coming and um, they're, they're, they haven't been put on this earth as they see it to reward you with smiles and please and thank you. They've been put on this earth to get you moving. And I think there's a level of force and energy in that that's really going to show. Fantastic to end on an optimistic note. Uh, let me uh, bring things to a close. Uh, let me thank you all for attending, either in person or online, and for what I thought was a terrific set of uh, questions. Um, let me thank the Princess Royal for her address. Uh, I hope as many of, as possible of you in the building will join us uh, for a drink uh, in the Long Gallery. If you don't know where that is, uh, I've been told to exit stage left, which is an expression I've been looking to use my whole lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> and now have... Um, but of course, um, and most importantly, um, the biggest thank you of all must go to our special speaker this evening for an absolutely fantastic and truly inspirational, uplifting uh, President's Lecture. Uh, thank you, Julia, and please, all of us, let's thank Julia in the usual. Thank you. I like that exit stage left is very cute. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.